0: Well, we're working through uh, this series, uh, The Sons of the Father. It's really two men, one a relatively short narrative, Isaac, uh, and then we move on to Jacob. Uh, so we have the, the, why the sons of the father were looking back to their, well, the father of Isaac, Abraham, the grand, grandfather of Jacob, Abraham. We looked at Abraham uh, a year or so ago and we're carrying on in this incredibly important foundation, really, for the whole of the Bible and the whole of the way in which God deals uh, with this world. Uh, It starts, really, well, it it springs back to life, really, I guess, in the life of Abraham. And from there, we see the whole New Testament building again as God engages with the world. But we find Jacob, at this point in... um, A very interesting situation, if we've been able to keep up with it up to now. He's traveling alone uh, to Padan Aram, which features again and again in the narrative, in the, the way the story unfolds. He's traveling alone, he's deceived his father, he's deceived his older brother with the help of his mother, uh, and uh, the outcome of that is that there is a clash between the two brothers and there is the possibility um, of, um, well, the mother says, I think they could both kill each other. I think that I could lose both both sons. That's what's in her mind. And, and so he's sent away. Uh, and as we look at it, initially, as the story last week unfolded to us, we see Jacob, Uh, lying in the wilderness by himself with a stone for a pillow, uh, with no clarity for his future. I guess most of us in here, in some way or another, we we have some idea of maybe what the future holds in some way or another, some shape or form. Even the very fact that we're here this afternoon... Means that we have relational connectedness here in this world. Uh, at least the fact that we're here says that we've got people to speak to, we've got people around us. By definition, because we're here, we are not in the situation that Jacob was in last week, where he was literally by himself uh, wondering whether he would survive. There's a really interesting. It's, I'll mention it a couple of times this afternoon because it, it does feature once or twice as just an experience. Uh, there was a really interesting program on TV. Uh, it's the world's toughest uh, uh, rowing race, uh, a race across the Atlantic. And um, it was uh, either you raced in four or you raced in two or you raced by yourself, rowing a boat across the Atlantic. And um, fascinating to watch as they had video um, of various people as they were being interviewed and then obviously editing it all together at the end. And they captured the video of this Australian guy by himself uh, in the middle of the Atlantic, rowing across the Atlantic. And uh, he's really kind of, you know, out there, uh, go-get-it kind of guy. And he um, was really kind of positive for a lot of the race. And then on one particular day, various things happened, various crises on that particular day. Various things went wrong, physically hurt himself, problems with navigation, all of those kind of things. And there's this moment where this uh, kind of real uh, up there kind of guy is um, actually in tears as he's uh, looking into the camera. And he says, I'm, I'm frightened. And I thought, wow, that, what a picture, that, what a kind of modern day picture that is for how Jacob must have been. It was literally just as dangerous for Jacob in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness, as out in the ocean, surrounded by various bits of technology. He was by himself with no relational connectedness <laughs> literally wondering what his future would be. We see that he arrives uh, finally, and as the story unfolds, we're going to see the way, interestingly, the way it unfolds. He finds a hope and he finds a future. But there are various things that really confront us when we come to this story, things that perhaps make us feel uncomfortable in our day-to-day. Here we have... um, a situation where uh, two things are so different to our own understanding of how the world works. Firstly, we have him marrying two women. It's an interesting situation for us. Uh, polygamy and uh, all of the implications of that are just right in there. And we've got to, we've got to think through and work through what does that mean for us today. Um, uh, in, interestingly, we have to confront that because this is not obviously in the narrative going on with God condemning it. This is one of the great heroes of the faith who's marrying two women. Uh, And secondly, we have this picture of a kind of ownership of the two women as the uh, father effectively um, sells them into those marriages. They are, if you like, possessions. We've got to We've got to kind of work through that, haven't we? And at least to some extent. So we're going to touch on those two things as we work it through. So here we have Jacob traveling across the wilderness on a journey where his mother has said, Go to my brother and spend a while there, spend some days there, get out of the way. That's the language that is used as his mother sends him out of the way. And he. Travels for some distance, then he arrives at a well. Now, if we've been working through the story, that's that as soon as it's almost like that the narrator, obviously under God's sovereign guidance in the whole of the issues of life, as soon as he arrives at a well, it's almost though, as we read the story, we should be ready, hang on a sec, what happened last time somebody arrived at a well? Well, last time, well, last time somebody arrived at a well, Uh, it was Abraham's servant who was sent to find a wife for Isaac. And he traveled and he reached a point where he got to a well. And it was there That he had the opportunity to meet Rebecca and his Jacob. Can you imagine what it must have been like? You you know that sort of Lawrence of Arabia kind of shimmering deserty kind of feel, where he's walking across this great expanse, and then in the in the distance, there obviously there was no great massive civilian developments at that time. In the distance, little dots are they people? He gets a bit closer and he realizes they are. They're a small gathering of people. Then he starts to notice that there are there there are sheep around, scattered around, and then he realizes it is the gathering of people at a well. I mean, for a start, that's hope, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that a well features so often in this? The other reason why what we were look what I was watching in terms of a programme rowing across the Atlantic was really interesting. There was one crew where their pump, which pumped salt water uh, and desalinated it to give them fresh water, broke down in the middle of the Atlantic. Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. You've had it. You've gone. You've finished. You, you are dead, surrounded by water. Jacob similarly In that situation, he would be fearful for his life and then he spots a well. It's as though the narrator is wanting to say, let me just create some metaphorical little connections for you. Because I want to create the idea of the hope of life into the future with the idea of the hope of life by having a drink. You know, that moment of life creates a springboard for the hope of life. And it happens again at a well. It's interesting what happens. Jacob arrives and he says in verse 4, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Can you imagine what it must have felt like for Jacob at that moment in time? We don't read that he met anybody else on the way. But he arrives at this well and he's been sent to try to find Laban. And the people that he speaks to knows Laban. Now, in one sense, that's not hugely unusual because there wasn't a mass population And yet at the same time, he arrives at a place and the first person that he speaks to knows the person that he is looking for. But even more remarkable is this. When he asks, is he well? Yes, he is. Well, that's great news, isn't it? Because there's the question with the fearful trepidation that he might not be living now. The whole of his line might have been wiped out by bandits. He might no longer live in this place. He might have had to move on for some reason. And he arrives and he says, is he well? Yeah, he's well. He's doing well. He's fine. Wow, what a kind of spring in his thoughts. What a kind of emotion begins to bubble up. And then they say this. And the narrator just uses such a small number of words to create this tension as it builds up, where he prepares us for just what we expect if we're tied into the way the story unfolds. Yes, he is. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. You are kidding me. Really? Rachel is arriving with the sheep. Rachel's a shepherd. She brings the sheep to the well along with all of the other shepherds. Bringing the sheep to be watered. Isn't it interesting? If we've got a sensitivity if we are understanding the way the narrator is constructing these various events for us, the narrator is trying to insist upon our thinking, trying to present it in ways which repeatedly show there is something else going on. There is more. He arrives as the servant of Abraham to find a wife for Isaac from a particular family, his family back home. And as he arrives at the well, Rebecca arrives at the well. And Jacob, as he travels away from death with no future, arrives at the well and at the moment when he arrives at the well, as he is walking towards the well, having a conversation with these shepherds, really, I guess, at that point, not knowing whether they were going to turn on him and kill him, to be honest, in the, in the world that he lived in at that point in time, he arrives at the well, and uh, there, coming across, at exactly that moment in time, is Rachel. And, and the narrator is saying... Does that happen just like that? Or is there, a, is there a creator of the story? The narrator is in a sense, he's saying this to us. I am just the narrator. I am the, I am the one who is literally here just to recount what happens. But there is a greater story writer. There is one who is constructing the story. There was one who is working it out. There was one who's moving in the whole of this beautiful journey. There is somebody who's creating this behind the scenes and it is no less than God himself. That's what we see when we see uh, Abraham's servant arrive and Laban understands it's God who's in this. And we're prepared for that if we read the story as it goes along. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to read your Bibles in that way. To understand the way the the story writer is constructing it in ways. It's not just this detached set of little cameos. It's not just have a look at this and have a look at that. It's a way in which we are carried along. So that we understand that God is is the story writer of this world, do we understand that that is the same God who we worship today? That is the same God who is still authoritative today. The complexity of this world, it seems impossible that that could be the case. And yet Romans 8 and verse 28 insists that that is how God is working today. All things, all things... Work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's as though we could write that over Jacob. We could write it over Jacob. Jacob, as you're running away in fear of death from your brother, as you're lying on a stone pillow, let me just remind you all things work together for good. All things. The fact that you are fearful at this moment in time, wondering what might happen, all things work together for good, for for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. All things, Jacob. All things. And that's how it works for you and me today. In the middle of those fears, in the middle of those discouragements, in the middle of, of those dark sleepless nights, all things work together for good for those who will love God, for those who are the called according to His purpose. Sometimes that is tough experiences. You know, Rebecca had to leave her family for God's work to work out. She had to step into the unknown. She had to go with a servant who she had only just met and travel back to a man that she didn't know because God was working it through. Jacob had to lie in the desert by himself because God was working it through. We go through experiences where we're just not sure what the next day is going to bring. But God is working it through. And sometimes our experiences, as tough as they are, are not simply for us. All things work together for good. All things because they are an interconnected purpose of God supporting and guiding his people, as, as, as a body. And sometimes, as Paul understands later on, there are times when I feel broken, there are t- and yet I'm not fearful. There are times when I, fi- I find that I, f- I know I am close to death, but it is for your sake, he says. He says it's for your sake that I fear these things. It's because I know that I am part of God's purpose for you. Do we understand that that is the God who writes the narrative? That is the God who is the story writer behind the history of the world. That is where our confidence therefore can be because he is that kind of God. Jacob has this conversation about with the shepherds. I, I, I think the way the, the story works, it's a bit like this. It's, it seems like it, it. There's this conversation going on about um, Rachel came. Uh, let, let me see. Rachel, Cain, verse 9, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherd. Then Jacob's, uh, sorry, let me go back a bit. Verse 6, he is well. Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we'll water the sheep. I think it's something like this. Jacob sees Rachel on her way. Uh, and he's thinking to himself, okay, how, how, do I, how do I have a conversation just with Rachel? Okay, listen guys, why don't you water your sheep, get them on the way, and then, and then Rachel will arrive and we can have a conversation by ourselves and, it, and it'll be amazing. Uh, no, no, we can't do that. We wait for all the sheep to gather. Big stone. We, we, we don't go through that. We've got our way of doing it and we wait for everybody to arrive and then. So Rachel arrives and and Jacob goes straight over and he moves the stone and he gets the water for Rachel. Uh, And then we read this, when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. I, I just think that that's—it's just an amazing comment, isn't it? Once again, <laughs> great little picture. These guys rowing across the Atlantic, pull into the harbour. When they finally achieved that whole trip, and almost to a man and a woman, every one of them gets on shore embraces somebody and bursts into tears. <laughs> Just bursts into tears. There is something deeply, deeply emotional about that sense of unexpectedly, against the odds, arriving. Uh, and, and Rachel is there and he kisses her. I'm guessing that that might have been a surprise to her. But he kisses her, and then he just weeps. What is going on when we do that? I think for a start, Jacob is expressing in that moment just what is core to our human identity. It's that overwhelming explosion of emotions. He weeps. Why weeping? Why do we weep in that situation? I, I think it's something to do with the fact that we, we know that where we are somehow has not been through simply our own strength. But somehow there has been an intervention from outside of us. I think it's a little indication. It's a little way in which God is nudging us along To say, just stop and pause, think about how you live, think about how you are, see how you behave, and understand that there are times when deep down, you know, you might have rode the Atlantic, but you know that you've not really done it simply in your own strength. You know that you couldn't contain all of that immense power out of there. Somehow, there has been a help from outside of you. What does the Bible call help from outside of you? The Bible calls it grace. The Bible calls help from outside of us grace. And it is grace that has come from God. And what Jacob was beginning to understand at this moment in time is I am here and and in that overwhelming explosion of emotion, there is the potential of a little trigger to remind me I am here because of God's grace, because of help from outside of me. When I was lying in the dust and I was reminded of the fact that there was, a, there was a connection with heaven and I received a promise and I find myself here, it confirms that it is because God is pouring out His grace upon me. You know, sometimes I think just the ordinary events of life if we think about them, can be helpful triggers to the kind of people that we are living before God. So again, I want to encourage you. Next time you have that kind of emotional explosion of of overwhelming sense of tearful joy where something has gone on, just maybe stop and ponder. I live in a world surrounded by God's grace. It is God's goodness that has got me to this place. In a moment, Jacob has fallen in love. And that's it. It's it. So there is a strange reoccurrence, isn't there, of this at the well kind of thing. But there is another strange reoccurrence. He arrives back with Rachel at Laban, and Uncle Laban, we remind ourselves of the relationship, Rebecca is the mother of Jacob, and Rebecca is the sister of Laban. So he arrives back at the family home, and uh, Uncle Laban just comes along and gives him this great big hug. It is so great to see you. I am so delighted to see you. I'm delighted to hear that my sister is alive. I'm delighted to hear that my sister is well. Just come on in. You just stay with us. You're going to be safe now. You're going to be warm tonight. You're going to be well fed tonight. You're going to sit around the campfire with us tonight and talk with other people. You're going to share in our community. You come along and Jacob just threw himself into that. And then after a while, he'd been working and and Uncle Laban says to him, listen, is it right that you should work for me for nothing? Just because you're a relative of mine, he says in verse 15. Tell me what your wages shall be. There's a little bit of cultural thing coming in here. As Jacob would normally bring uh, uh, a payment or the father of Jacob would bring a payment as a uh, if you like a dowry for the hand or work in reverse he brings some money for the uh, the hand of his daughter Rachel give me the hand of your daughter seven years that's made to you love Seven years' work. So he commits himself to seven years of work. At the end of seven years, he comes along and he says, right, I've worked for you for seven years. There's another little kind of beautiful little narrative uh, statement there in verse 20. Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. Uh, because of his love for her. He's just so in love with her. I guess that through that seven years, he's chatting to her and uh, maybe looking forward maybe to, to the future. And, but he just commits himself to working and they get to the end of the seven years. And now he says, right now, so Uncle Laban sets a feast. Following morning, he wakes up with the woman next to him. And the way the narrator writes it is spectacular. Verse 25. They slept together. They're married. There's been a feast. Seven years have been served. He's made the payment. When morning came, there was Leah! Exclamation mark. There was Leah. That was a shock. Because, you see, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Verse 17, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. The irony of this event is spectacular. It is spectacular. What's happened already? The deceiver, Jacob, has already got away with all sorts of trickery. But now, the situation is reversed and the deceiver becomes the deceived. Isn't that remarkable? But you know, It's not just that. Secondly, we see that Laban's reply in verse 26 is equally remarkable. Jacob goes to him and he says, Look, what have you done? You've deceived me. We had an agreement. And Laban turns round to him. And he says... It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder one. (laughs) What did Jacob deceive his father about? By the younger one getting what was not rightfully his. And Laban turns around. It's almost as though, and this hasn't happened. It's almost as though Esau has sent his, uh, his uncle Laban an email and said, you need to know what Jacob did to me. It's so parallel. It's so remarkable what's gone on that the deceiver becomes the deceived, but the nature of the deception is exactly the same. What Jacob thought he got away with in terms of reversing the custom of primogeniture, he is now on the receiving end of it's not our custom that the younger is married before the elder. That's a just... A, that's just a, what? Are women a possession? Well, just let's pause for a moment and, and just stop and say, for a start, it is a great thing that we do not treat each other like that today. But... The roots of it are not necessarily a terrible thing. As we saw with the idea of the elder son inheriting, it was the idea of the elder son who inherits is the one who has obviously lived the longest the one who is therefore more likely to be able to sustain into the future. And likewise, if two daughters, one has lived the longer, then she is likely to be able to sustain the longer. And therefore, the same principle occurs. The same idea occurs. We don't necessarily agree with it today, but one of the things I want to encourage you is do not necessarily turn Away from the ideas that the Bible is in its big picture communicating to us because we don't necessarily get the current cultures of the day. It's the way it worked at that time. And isn't it remarkable that God is willing to work within the cultural norms of the day and yet at the same time, over the whole of history, redeem them so that we don't see this now certainly not in our culture although there are still cultures where it exists and so Jacob ends up married to Leah surprisingly (laughs) and Leah is known for her weak eyes Remarkably, like Isaac, was known for his weak eyes. Isn't that amazing? What's the narrator saying? Jacob, don't carry on trying to control everything. Don't take it into your own hands. (laughs) The, The parallels are remarkable. And so we have the outcome of which... Is that the conversation goes on with Uncle Laban, look at what you've done to me. This can't be right. Okay, well, I'll tell you what: Work for another seven years for me, and in a week's time after the celebration of the wedding, you can marry Rachel as well. It sounds I remember when I was young, I thought he'd married Leah seven years, then worked another seven years. Uh, and married Rachel. In actual fact, it was only a week later that he married Rachel, but worked for another seven years subsequently to pay for her. Uh, Isn't it just stop for a moment? For a start, and what we're going to see is this pattern of family life just results in crisis. It's not a good thing. The way it works out and the pattern that God sets... For men, men and women to live together as a single couple, this does not work out helpfully. And yet again, God is working within what is going on in the world at that moment in time. And he, and he ends up with these two wives. I think verse 30 is, one, in one sense, one of the heartstring-tugging verses of this whole narrative. A week later Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. It's as if the narrator is saying, Do you know what? It it didn't work here in lots of ways. His love was greater for one than the other. Does that sound a bit like what was going on before where there was one love for one son greater than the love for the other son? It's messed up relationships. And just to close, we're going to jump right the way through to the end of their lives. Rachel and Leah. Leah, the, the underdog, really. The one who's kind of used in a deception by her her own father to marry her off? How does it end for them? Do you remember all the way through what we've been saying is narrative and history and heritage is important? Chapter 49, verse 31 says this. Jacob's an old man now and he's recounting, almost. he's on his deathbed, he's recounting his story, if if you like. And it says this, there Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebecca were buried. And there I buried Leah. There I buried Leah. And a bit later, Joseph takes his father's body to be buried with Leah the one who was the underdog becomes part of the heritage. Isn't that incredibly redeeming? That in the way God works it out, Leah is the one who is buried alongside Sarah and Rebecca and enters into this lineage and heritage and is redeemed from being secondary to being foundational for the future. But listen to this. What happened to Rachel? Verse 48, verse 7 says this. As I was returning from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath. Wow. One, who is the second-rate one, it seems, is buried with the ancestors. The other, it seems, is just buried at the side of the road on the journey back. Except that, except that, the narrator adds another little couple of words for us that give us hope. Because it says in brackets, so I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When I read that, honestly, literally, The hairs on my arms stood up. Wow. One is redeemed to a heritage with the ancestors and the other is buried at a place which signifies the greatest hope. One is buried where a birth of hope takes place. So much so that later on in the book of Ruth, later on where uh, Ruth is redeemed by Boaz, again it's a book that we've looked at, it says this, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Does that come true? When the women said, I hope you have fame in Bethlehem, does it come true? Oh, by heritage it does. Because born in Bethlehem from this very family is the saviour of the world. Born from the heritage of whom? Leah. Because it is Leah who bears Judah. And it is Judah who is the forerunner of Jesus. Isn't isn't God incredibly redeeming? Isn't He wonderful? Isn't He amazing in the way He takes this story and reverses all of our negative human behaviors, all of our tendencies, and He says, I can make this great. And He says to you and me, I can make it great in this way because of all of your tendencies. You don't need a saviour in a a woman that you meet at a well to marry. You don't need a saviour in possessions as Jacob builds up a hope. You need a saviour in Jesus and that is precisely who I am delivering because that is what this story is all about. Why did the narrator say that and that is Bethlehem? Bethlehem had no significance at that moment in time. Why did the women sing about Bethlehem when Ruth was brought into the household of Boaz? And the, Rachel and Leo portrayed as the father, the mothers of Israel. Why is Bethlehem mentioned? They had no reason to sing of Bethlehem other than its heritage through David. They sung because there is all what God is doing to prepare you and me to say Bethlehem has a massive significance because there the Saviour of the world is born. That's the narrative. That's the story. Polygamy. Arranged marriages. Unbalanced love. All of that mess is redeemed in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Because it is our God who is working out the story in that way. You know, it is no big deal to arrange for two women to arrive at a well at just the right time when the guys are there. That is no big deal. When you can order all of the events in history so that a young woman in future years to come goes to Bethlehem of all places, to bear as a virgin a child who is the Savior of the world.